The Joe Pomp Show is brought to you by U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Hope everyone's having a great week so far, and thank you again for joining me today. Let's start with the obvious, some housekeeping stuff. If you are listening to this podcast on a podcast feed, make sure to subscribe to my channel so you get the episodes automatically downloaded in your queue. Please leave me a five-star review telling me what I've been doing well, what I can be doing a little bit better if you haven't done that already. And good news, I'll also be uploading these videos to YouTube starting with this episode. So if you guys want to watch video of these episodes, go to my YouTube channel at Joe Pompliano. You'll be able to see all of the videos there. But let's get into it because we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about three things. We're going to start things off with the NBA. I want to talk a little bit about the All-Star game, but more importantly, where the NBA is headed under the direction of Adam Silver as the commissioner. So we'll start with that. Number two, we're going to be talking some college football. Some news came out this week about the new alignment and the new structure of the college football 12-team playoffs starting next year. So I want to get into that. But more importantly, some details were swept under the rug and an update has been provided about Florida State potentially leaving the ACC and what this could mean for the future of conference realignment across the college football landscape. And last but not least, we're going to be talking baseball. Nike and Fanatics are getting a lot of heat for their recent updated Major League Baseball jerseys from fans, from players, from the media, and everyone else in between. So I'm going to talk you guys through that partnership, including why it's happening the way that it's happening. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, so let's get right into it. All right, let's start with the NBA. So everyone saw what happened with the All-Star Game. You've probably read about it. You've listened to podcasts about it. You've heard it on TV over the last number of days. Everyone's trying to figure out how this can get better. And to be honest, the most frustrating part about this for someone like me is that Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, spent a year telling us that this game was going to be better. It was one of his main initiatives this year was to make All-Star Weekend, and specifically the game itself, better than it had been in years past. Because let's be honest, this is a glorified exhibition at this point. No one plays defense. They score hundreds of points. And it's a pretty much a disaster for real fans that want to see real basketball between the best players in the world. Adam Silver made a bunch of different changes, including some of the things that the players mentioned. One thing specific that was mentioned was that they wanted a shorter opening ceremony for introductions so they could get more into the flow of the game like they see on a typical game day. Adam Silver said, okay, no problem. He made it shorter, and he did a number of other things, too, that they wanted. And Adam Silver thought it was going to be better. He literally said right before the game that he thought we were going to get a better game, and he showed it through his actions. He brought executives from uh, Warner Brothers, from ESPN, from Amazon and Apple to the game and hosted them throughout the weekend as he looks to tie the bow on a new media rights deal that could potentially be worth over $5 billion annually. But what do you know? Somehow this game was worse than it has ever been before. I mean, the Eastern All-Star team scored 211 points. Nearly 400 points were scored between the two two teams themselves. There were virtually no free throw shot because there were no fouls. And it was just an absolute disaster from a defensive perspective. So much so that I want to read you guys exactly what Adam Silver said after the game. He went to go hand the trophy to the Eastern Conference All-Stars. And he said, Eastern Conference All-Stars, you guys scored more points than anyone else. Well, congratulations. Literally, that's what he said. So he was not happy about the outcome of this. And in the days that have followed, everyone seems to have an opinion about how we can fix the All-Star game. You guys have probably heard solutions that uh, revolve around maybe giving the winning team home court advantage in the NBA Finals. Or maybe, maybe we should incentivize the players, not through home court advantage, but through monetary pay and increase in salary. And that could come in the form of maybe $500,000 for the winning team like they do for the in-season tournament. But to me, 
This deterioration that we've seen through the All-Star game over the years speaks more about the direction and the divide of the NBA between their off-the-court success and the on-court product. And I'll explain what I mean. Adam Silver, when you really think about it, is the only commissioner in sports that is universally loved by pretty much everyone. We're talking about the media likes him, fans like him, players like him, owners like him. Hell, I like him. He's a great guy. He's a really nice guy. And he seems to always do everything that's in the best interest of everyone. But when you really think about a commissioner, and it's not normal, if you think about Roger Goodell, Rob Manfred, Gary Bett, these commissioners across, I don't, I don't care if we want to talk about the NFL, MLB, NHL, whatever, the commissioner is generally not liked by everyone because everyone knows at the end of the day that they work for the owners, and their sole goal is to maximize revenue, to increase valuations, and guide growth for these leagues. And most of the time, that's at odds with what some of the players want and what some of the fans want, and certainly with how the media interacts with that individual and how they're criticized. Exactly why Roger Goodell, while fans don't like him and players don't necessarily like him, the owners continue to give him new contracts every single time his contract comes up and he gets paid 50, 60, 70 million dollars a year to do it because valuations are up and he's doing a really good job on the business side. But Adam Silver straddles that line and he plays both sides. He wants to be loved by the fans, he wants to be loved by the players, and he wants to do a good job for the owners. But the problem with that is that he hasn't done as good of a job on the court versus off the court. Off the court, don't get me wrong. I have some numbers here for you guys. The NBA will do over $11 billion in revenue this year. Franchise valuations are up 685% over the last decade since he's been commissioner, increasing from an average valuation of $509 million per team to $3.85 billion per team today. I mean, that's absolutely insane to increase from $500 million per team to nearly $4 billion per team. And the players are happy too, because if you look at the top 40 players across the NBA last year, they brought in collectively nearly $2 billion in earnings, according to Sportico. But on the court, it's a completely different story for fans and people that want to watch competitive basketball. I mean, the game has drastically changed over the last decade. If you look at points, point totals. NBA teams are scoring an average of 115.6 points per game today compared to 101 points per game in 2013 over the last decade since Adam Silver has been commissioner. They have also had to implement new rules with minimum amount of games required to stop people from sitting out games when fans come to see them in big games. And they even had to bribe players, again, with money, prize incentives to get them to take the new in-season tournament seriously. And I'm not the only one who's talking about this. I'm sure you guys have seen media personalities like Colin Coward and Nick Wright this week saying that they're scared for the future of the NBA. And the numbers themselves back this up. While virtually every other major league across the United States today has seen their viewership increase over the last few years since Nielsen added out-of-home viewership to their totals on the national side in 2020, the NBA is down 1.3% last year, and they're down about 50% from the peak Michael Jordan years. In 1995-96, during Michael Jordan's tenure with the Bulls, the NBA was averaging 3 million viewers per NBA regular season game. Last year, they averaged 1.9 million, down 47% over the last two decades, we'll call it. Now, that was the peak, so again, maybe it's not fair to criticize that, but when you see the NFL setting viewership highs every single weekend, college football, for instance, was the most watched college football season last year than we had ever seen in history before. And if you look at the most watched TV broadcasts annually, this is a big thing every year because the NFL has come to dominate this. The NBA actually had 17 of the top 100 most watched US TV broadcasts in 2017. Last year, they had zero. 
And I think it should also concern people that two of the NBA's most financially savvy owners, Mark Cuban with the Dallas Mavericks and Chamath with the Golden State Warriors, recently sold their equity stakes. And they should especially be concerned because Mark Cuban specifically cited the new media rights deal. That's going to be a little bit shorter, but he also said that he's more concerned about the next one. He said on the All the Smoke podcast, he said, this next media rights deal will be good, but I'm more worried about the one after that. Now, the reason I bring this up is not to alarm you, but I want to talk about it because Adam Silver is finalizing a contract extension to remain as commissioner of the NBA through 2030. Now, don't get me wrong. This is the right move. The NBA should absolutely keep him as commissioner. They're close to finalizing a new media rights deal with several rumored favorites like ESPN, Warner Brothers, and Amazon. They're potentially going to double that media rights fee up to $5 billion a year, which is a little bit shorter than many people thought they might get it, maybe $7 billion a year. But $5 billion and doubling the media rights is still a really good outcome. And then if you think beyond that, once the media rights are closed up and tied up, they're going to focus on expansion. They're probably going to add a new franchise in Las Vegas, and they'll add another franchise after that somewhere else too. Adam Silver is going to be an integral part of that, and keeping continuity at the leadership level is a really important piece too. So no, I'm not saying that the NBA should have gotten rid of him. I'm not saying they should hire someone else. But I do think that we're seeing this growing divide between the business, where everything's up and to the right, valuations are up, ticket sales are up, everyone's happy, and so forth, with the actual on-court product. And I think that's bleeding over to fan frustration. And another reason for this is because it's almost self-inflicted. Younger players entering the NBA today have been engrossed in what we'll call ring culture, right? Understanding that nothing outside of championships matters to your legacy at the end of the day. Regular seasons don't matter. Necessarily, MVPs don't always matter. That's really the only thing that you could argue does matter during the regular season. But putting up stats during the regular season and winning and getting first seeds or second seeds doesn't really matter. You're going to be judged at the end of the day on how many championships you win. And that's the culture that media has brought upon itself. So I think that's one problem. But then the other problem, which seems almost like not really a problem, really, is the idea that players are more skilled today than they ever have been before. And Adam Silver talked about this a little bit during the All-Star break. And I want to read you guys a quote here. He said, players born outside the United States, it's clear that the development is very different from many of those programs. There is more of a focus on practice, less of a focus on games, which seems to be the opposite of many of the youth programs in the United States. Players are coming into the league incredibly skilled, but that doesn't always necessarily translate to being team basketball players. I'm hearing from those same coaches that may be complaining about the inability to play defense is that these players are not as prepared as I'd like them to be, particularly as very high draft picks. Now, that quote is important to me because at the end of the day, what it sounds like is that Adam Silver is looking into potentially setting up an academy of sorts, similar to what you might see across European football, where Arsenal or Real Madrid or any of these other teams have academies and they're developing players from a very young age about how they want them to play the game. And they're focusing on fundamentals and practicing team defense versus just an AAU team where we'll play five to 10 games every single weekend during every single summer from when you're a little kid to when you go to college. And they all have personal trainers and they're just focused on ball handling and shooting and moves and everything else like that. And you see it. Scoring is essentially at will in the NBA today. I mean, Luca's dropping 70. Every single player is scoring more than ever before. And analytics is certainly part of this, so I don't want to put that away. The three-point game has changed the NBA. Whether it's good or bad, you guys can make the decision. But we're seeing more skill than ever before. Players don't care about the regular season like they have in the past. 
And to be quite honest, it almost feels like a younger generation of players is almost a little bit entitled to some degree, right? And I say that carefully because I do think that some of them care about the fans. But what we've seen is they want to play under the guise of incentives. We heard them talk about it after the All-Star game. They said that they should be paid for this. There needs to be an incentive on the line to go out and entertain fans, and they don't want to get hurt for a meaningless game that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. And it's true that it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of winning an NBA championship, which is their ultimate goal because that's what the media judges them on. But it certainly matters to fans. Who buys the tickets? Who watches the game? Who gives impressions to the sponsors that pay their salaries? The fans do. This is immensely important for the fans, and it's something that I don't think is necessarily going to get better. And I wouldn't even argue is really the All-Star Game's fault. If you think about the All-Star Game, the people that are sponsoring the All-Star Game, they know what they're getting into. If you talk about any one of these companies at Ruffles or whoever sponsors the game another year, they know what they're getting into. It's based on impressions. It's based on entertainment. And they know it's not going to be a serious game. Same thing goes with the three-point shooting competition and the slam dunk competition and the skills competition, everything else like that. Some of this will get better with some incremental changes here or there, but I wouldn't expect it to get much better. And I certainly don't think we're going to go back to the days where we're getting 10, 15, 20 million viewers for an all-star game. That's just not going to happen based on the current trends and the way that these players are interacting with the game. But I'll leave you guys with this. I try to be an optimist in a lot of these situations. I don't want to be negative. It's become cool kind of to say that the NBA is going down and ESPN is going bankrupt and the league is is, uh, going down the toilet and no one cares about these games anymore. I don't think that's true. The numbers actually indicate that that's not true. The NBA is the world's second most profitable sports league, only behind the NFL. There is more parity across the league than we've ever seen before. If you think about the championships over the last five years, Five different teams have won NBA championships over the last five years. So there's great parity in the league today. And a lot of people are still watching these games. It's incredibly lucrative, especially considering it's an inventory sport, right? If you look at the NFL, those teams are playing 17 games a year. NBA teams are playing 82 games a year. So it's an inventory sport. You shouldn't expect the ratings to be as high as the NFL. And to be honest, no one is touching the NFL or even college football in the United States today. But I still do think these are problems worth discussing. Because as the business case for the NBA has skyrocketed over the last decade, we're seeing some of the league's most vocal and financially savvy owners exit. Now the next media rights deal is going to be shorter in length than we previously thought, and it's going to be a little bit cheaper on the valuation side than we previously thought. Owners like Mark Cuban are publicly saying that they're not as high on the next media rights deal or worried about the next media rights deal as much as they once were. And I think what we're seeing is that the league's superstars are carrying the league today. And I'm specifically talking about LeBron James and Stephen Curry. But those two guys are going to be retiring in the next five or at least by the next decade, they're going to be retired. They're 35 and I think 37 or 38 years old. So they're not going to play into their 45s and their 50s. These guys are going to retire and it's going to be up to a younger generation of players to carry that torch. And what concerns me is that they're not ready for that. The on-court product has consistently gotten worse over the last several years. Viewership is down relative to everything else in sports that is up. And the fans are telling the owners, they're telling the commissioner, they're telling the players, that they're not enjoying the game as much as they once were. Again, I don't say this to be an alarmist. I don't want to tell people that the league is failing. They're not. It's still incredibly lucrative. The owners are making more money than they ever have before. And that's ultimately why Adam Silver doesn't feel the need to make significant changes to the actual on-court product. That will change over time, though, because consumers are going to vote with their wallets. They're going to continue to spend more of their time watching other leagues like the NFL, who we have seen has taken over from a viewership perspective. All of the broadcasts within the top 100, 100 US TV broadcasts on a sports side, at least, are now NFL or, or college football games. So that has already changed, and we're going to see that change even more. And this is something that the NBA should be paying more attention to because ultimately it's the consumers that run everything. All you have to do is follow the money. Media rights, sponsorships, viewership, everything else in between is what really matters 
And if the on-court product continues to get worse, eventually it's going to impact the off-court business decisions that the NBA has seen over the last few years. And quite frankly, the success that they've seen as well. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Winter can be a drag. Thankfully, we have sports to get us through the early part of the year. If you ask me, nothing goes together quite like food and sports, especially this time of year. I mean, we got football on, college and pro hoops, hockey. So let's just say I may be plopped down on my couch until the temperature hits the 80s again. And the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card provides the perfect way to earn rewards. Whether you're watching your team with other super fans at a local eatery or in the comfort of your own living room. I know me personally, there's nothing better than ordering wings, sitting on my own couch, and watching sports. You can earn four times points when you dine out or have food delivered. I mean, those wings do sound pretty damn good. Plus, earn two times points at grocery stores. Maybe you want to cook the wings yourself. And if you're willing to brave the elements, even getting to the game can be rewarding, as you'll earn two times points at gas stations and EV charging stations. So go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Score big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply and live every day your way. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association. Pursue it to a license from Visa USA Incorporated. Some restrictions may apply. All right, that's enough about the NBA, though. I want to talk about college football. We've talked about college football a little bit over the past few shows here. But some new news happened this week that you guys may have heard about, but you probably haven't looked at the implications of it on the conference side. And what I'm talking about is the college football playoff. So when the college football playoff was implemented a few years ago and they decided to go from uh, four teams to 12 teams, it was ultimately decided that it would be a six plus six model. That means that six conference championships would get automatic bids into the 12-team playoff, and then the remaining six spots would come from automatic qualifying bids. So essentially what would happen is the top six-ranked conference championships would get in, and then they would pick six other teams that were higher ranked in the polls. And what that meant was that the Power Fives essentially were going to always get a slot. Whoever won a Power Five conference, we're talking ACC, SEC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12. And then one of the group of fives would also get a spot, whoever's the highest ranked, and the rest would be filled out from you know multiple SEC teams, Big Ten teams, et cetera. You guys get the point. But with the Pac-12 imploding over the last year, and obviously that conference going away with only two teams now, they're not eligible to hold a conference championship. So it made sense to get rid of that conference championship as part of the automatic qualifying thing. And the playoff committee ended up voting on this over the last week, and they changed it from a six plus six model to a five plus seven model. That's all great. I think it makes a lot of sense. If you're the Pac-12, you weren't going to be getting in anyways. So now you opened up a door for one of those two teams to potentially get in anyways. And that's why they ended up voting for it. And at the end of the day, there's still going to be a slot that all of the group of five teams are going to be going for as well. So no arguments there. We still have a lot to figure out with the college football playoff, financials, revenue sharing, voting, all of that stuff is still up in the air. I do think it's going to get figured out. There's an offer from ESPN on the table for $1.3 billion a year to broadcast this uh, 12-team playoff. 11 games a year, incredibly lucrative. That's about $115, $120 million per game per year, which again is roughly equal to what the NFL got in return from Peacock for their exclusive NFL playoff game. So it's a great deal for the college football playoff. I think it's a good deal for ESPN too because they're locking up some premium rights. But more importantly, I want to talk about this because one of the more important issues from this past week got swept under the rug. And I'm specifically talking about Florida State. So anyone that has followed college football over the last few years knows that there's been immense movement on the conference realignment side. Obviously, the Pac-12 essentially imploded and a bunch of those teams went to different conferences. But the ACC, in my opinion, 
could face some trouble too. And what we've seen on this front is that Florida State filed a lawsuit. And essentially, it boils down to the fact that they're trying to get out of their media rights deal with the ACC. So the way that this works is the ACC signed an agreement with ESPN to broadcast all of their football teams. And as part of that agreement, Florida State and all of the other ACC schools signed a grant of rights. And essentially what the grant of rights allows them to do is they give their broadcast rights. They sign over their broadcast rights to the ACC. The ACC then goes out and packages all those up and sells them to a network as part of a broadcasting deal. The problem is that with the Big Ten and the SEC getting stronger over the last two years by conference realignment, they went out and they signed more lucrative TV deals, which are going to pay teams in their conference more money than Florida State is going to be getting paid going forward. Now, the reason why this is so important for Florida State is because Florida State is a good football school. They're one of the few teams to win a national championship over the last decade or so. And what we've seen is now with the money being split by by various different counterparties, Florida State says that they will be down about $20 million per year to the higher earning teams across the Big Ten and the SEC. Now, $20 million in the grand scheme of things is still a lot of money. I mean, that's a huge sum of money when it comes to some of these athletic department budgets and specifically speaking of the football program. So Florida State is saying this is going to put them at a disadvantage when it comes to facilities, coaches, NIL, and everything else in between. Down $20 million can make a difference. And, and, and to be honest, I kind of agree with that, right? The idea that they should be earning less money than Rutgers or Vanderbilt simply because they're in a different conference doesn't make a lot of sense. That's the agreement they signed, and that's the agreement that they're in with the ACC and ESPN. So they filed this lawsuit, and they're trying to get out of the grant of rights. This has been an uphill battle. Multiple people have talked about that are much smarter than me on the law side, saying that this is ironclad. There's no way they're going to be able to get out of it. And if they want to leave, they're going to have to pay upwards of $600 million to get out of it. And that $600 million consists of a few different things. It consists of uh, the media rights that they're going to forgo. It consists of a contract breakup fee that I think is like $130 million. And then they have to cover legal fees and everything else too. So that $600 million would be a huge hit. Florida State has talked about raising private equity money to be able to fund that. They could go the SMU route, which was essentially them raising money from boosters to be able to get out of a media deal or or forfeit some of the money and get some of that back through the booster money. But I don't think Florida State is going to be able to do that because it's just such a wild sum of money. And that's part of the reason why the agreement with the ACC was considered ironclad. Because instead of this agreement going till 2030 or 2034, like the deal does with the SEC and the Big Ten, this deal goes, I think it's until 2034 which is, or 2036, which is even further down the road. So they're in this for the long haul. When it was signed, it was like a 10-year deal with another 10-year extension. And uh, ESPN is most likely going to pick that up as long as the conference is intact. But this week, what happened was that the ACC responded to Florida State's lawsuit. And I don't want to read you guys all of the legal jargon, but what you need to know is they essentially opened the door for Florida State to come to them and negotiate an agreement for them to exit this contract. And really what that means is that the ACC could potentially be willing to accept a sum of money that is less than the $600 million fee that they would have to forego to get out of this contract. So again, we're talking wide ranges here, but just think about it in the terms of more than zero, less than $600 million. So there's a wide gap there. But at the end of the day, this is huge because if Florida State finds a way out of this contract, this could be detrimental to the life of the ACC going forward. And I know that, and I'm saying that confidently because... Clemson, UNC, Florida State, Miami, NC State, Virginia, and Virginia Tech. Those seven ACC schools met last year talking about how they could potentially get out of this media rights deal. 
And if Florida State finds a way to get out of this deal, you can guarantee all of those other schools, specifically speaking, Clemson, who dominates across college football over the last decade, and other schools, too, that are even big in basketball. I mean, we're talking about UNC, NC State, Virginia, Virginia Tech here. These are good schools. They could find other homes across different conferences across the country. So I think that's going to open the door for other teams to leave. And ultimately, if Florida State leaves, ESPN might end up pulling this deal anyways from the ACC, and that can make a drastic difference in the overall numbers from a competitive standpoint of what these schools are getting paid. And if that deal is gone, then these teams may be able to leave a little bit more freely. So I was shocked to see that the ACC would be willing to potentially negotiate this. Now, there may be some other things going on under the surface here, but Florida State would be wise to look into this and potentially negotiate with them and find an alternative solution to the lawsuit. Because if you think about the lawsuit, this is at least going to be going on for the next two years. And even best case scenario, best case scenario, Florida State wins the lawsuit, which is they get out of the deal entirely and they are free to go sign with another conference and they get their media rights back. Best case scenario. The ACC is obviously going to appeal that and it could be tied up for another two years. And then we're talking about, you know, four years down the line, 2028 at this point, where they're going to have to go find a new conference from there. Now, it's unclear where they would go if they were to leave the ACC. Obviously, the SEC would make a lot of sense. They have Florida, their in-state rival, and it makes sense from a geographic perspective as well. But maybe the Big Ten wants to add them. So I've talked about this at length by now, but what I think is going to happen is we're going to see a more professional model into the collegiate sports atmosphere, specifically when it comes to football by itself. And the reason I think that is because if the Big Ten and the SEC were were to come to some agreement to join forces of some sort, they would have the best teams in the country. They would be able to negotiate better media rights than anyone else because they would have this closed-end ecosystem in a college football atmosphere to operate out of, and they would enhance the amount of money that they're able to get from each team. So if Florida State was to leave the ACC, they would go join one of those conferences and would only enhance that argument even more. That's to be determined, though. This is the first step in that process, albeit it could potentially be a big one, because if Florida State leaves the ACC, the ACC could crumble altogether. And it's certainly something as a fan of college football or as a fan of college sports in general, if you're aligned to a certain conference because your team plays in that conference, it's something you should be watching. Conference realignment is not over with. And ultimately, the rules that the college football playoff committee just voted on could get changed within the next year if something happens on this front. Anyway, so I'll keep you guys updated as well. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You've probably noticed over the last few years that many more of your family and friends are starting to take therapy more seriously. And it's not just you. I've personally noticed this across my family and friends too. And I think the major reason for this is that they've now noticed that therapy isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is proven to help with other things like communication skills, improving mood, increasing self-awareness, and making your relationships stronger. So if you're thinking about starting therapy today, there's no better place than BetterHelp. BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is you go on their website, you fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. They've helped out millions of people with therapy help, and they have 35,000 licensed therapists ready to help you. So visit betterhelp.com slash pomp to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, Dot com slash pomp. But the next thing I want to talk about is MLB uniforms for this upcoming season. If you're a fan of baseball or really sports in general, you've probably seen the news over the last few weeks that the jerseys that they're going to be wearing across Major League Baseball this year, the uniforms in general, tops and bottoms, players are very unhappy with these uniforms. Most of the complaints revolve around the jerseys themselves. The logos on the back have been dropped down, so the MLB logo is now below the neckline. It's closer to the name. 
the wording, uh, the lettering on the name itself, on the last name, has gotten significantly smaller, and the numbers have gotten bigger. The name is also more arch now. And you guys have seen the pictures. I don't need to show them to you. Again, it looks silly. There are many, 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 many players complaining about this. Not only the, the coloring, not only the numbers, not only the names. They're complaining about the pants, saying that they're lighter than normal. They're saying the coloring is off for the Cubs uniforms and others too. And there's been no good news. Now, Major League Baseball has been trying to do damage control on this over the last few weeks. Specifically speaking, they released a press release saying that they are going to look into it, and they also included quotes from specific players. And I want to read you these quotes, and then I'll tell you why I want to read them to you. The first quote was from uh, Nolan Arenado from the St. Louis Cardinals. He said, the Nike Vapor Premier jersey is soft, light, and comfortable. It's almost like wearing my favorite shirt out on the field, and it's so easy to move around it. The next quote came from Adley Rushman from the Baltimore Orioles. He said, the jerseys this season are much more breathable with vents on the numbers and better airflow all around. It's really going to make a difference during those hot summer games when I'm in full gear. And the last quote came from Ronald Acuna Jr. He said, these new uniforms fit better and feel lighter. I play fast and want to wear something that won't pull when I'm running. Feeling free in the jersey is the best feeling in the world. And the reason I wanted to read you those quotes is because I'm almost entirely certain that they're made up. I do not think that those players came up on those quotes by themselves. And that's not to say that every PR quote isn't given by someone else and then signed off by the players. I get it. They sign off on a lot of these quotes. But if you're going to put quotes to players' names, one, find some players that aren't sponsored by Nike. All of these guys are sponsored by Nike, but also make them a little bit more believable. In no sense does anyone believe that those three quotes were actually said by the players themselves, and they actually believe it. No, they're Nike-sponsored athletes, and they were given those quotes and signed off on those quotes. So I think that was kind of a, a waste of time, to be quite frankly, that they released that press release. But I want to explain to you guys exactly what happened here, because everyone is just giving Fanatics a hard time. And I'm not saying that Fanatics doesn't deserve a hard time, but let's rewind a few years. A few years ago, Nike signed a deal with Major League Baseball in cahoots, in conjunction with Fanatics. And they were going to design and manufacture the official on-field uniforms for Major League Baseball going forward in a 10-year deal worth about a billion dollars, a little bit over a billion dollars. And the way this was going to work was that Nike was going to design the jerseys. These jerseys have been tested before. They were going to design the jerseys. And then Fanatics was actually going to manufacture the jerseys and deliver them to the players and the team. Now, Fanatics isn't doing this in their own factory. They bought the Majestic factory, who was making these jerseys beforehand. So theoretically, nothing really changed, I guess you could say, but the jerseys have obviously changed. Now, part of this, Nike deserves the blame because the design of the jerseys is significantly different than we have seen in the past. Now, there is precedent for this. I think it was 2006, the last time Major League Baseball had an overhaul of its uniforms. Players complained about them. Fans complained about them. This is not necessarily new, and it's to be expected to some degree. But what I do think is happening here is that the lights are getting blinded a little bit because almost everyone you know in sports is in bed with Fanatics. Now, I've talked about this at length before on this podcast, the newsletter on social media. It's been an incredibly smart move by Michael Rubin at Fanatics and the Fanatics business in general. They've given equity in lieu sometimes of extra money with these leagues through their partnerships to give them equity in the businesses. And what we've seen now is there's a list of different leagues, the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, MLS, the NFL Players Association, MLB Players Association, and the NBA Players Association. All of those leagues and their players association own equity in Fanatics. And it was reported by Forbes last year that when you add up all of those entities, their stakes are collectively worth more than $5 billion in equity value in Fanatics. 
So they've created this win-win situation where the more merchandise they sell through their partnership with Fanatics, the more money the leagues and the Players Association makes. They're double dipping. It's, it's literally the oldest trick in the book. So it's very smart, very intelligent. I get it. You're aligning your incentives and you're going out to make more money. But what happens now is that when problems like this arise, it almost takes this internal look and feel where now the MLB has to go internal and figure out what exactly is happening and fix it before everyone complains even further. About it. So I do think some changes are going to be happening. I would expect that the design will change a little bit and the uniforms will be better by opening day. And the reason I think that is because fans are pissed and they're not going to pay $450 for an official uniform that looks like crap. So expect some of this stuff to change again. It's smart by Fanatics to get in business with all these leagues. It's in some cases smart by the leagues to get in business with Fanatics because that business has grown a lot over the years. Michael Rubin has made everyone a lot of money, but the uniforms are not good. They look terrible. The players hate them. The fans hate them. And they're going to be changing before opening day. I can almost guarantee you that the design will change a little bit and the quality of the product will change as well. This is not simply a Fanatics problem. It's not simply a Nike problem. It's them being in business together and not making uniforms that are good enough for baseball players and baseball fans this year and the years going forward. All right, everyone, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and learned something new. If you're new to the channel, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast feed and leave me a five-star review telling me what you enjoyed, what you want to hear more about, what I can be doing better, and so forth. Otherwise, I hope everyone has a great day, and we'll talk later this week.